Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to this final episode on the second part of the catechism. So this is super exciting. By the end of this episode, we will technically be halfway through the catechism. Technically, we'll be halfway through in the sense that we'll be two of four parts through the catechism. But in terms of the actual amount of material that we have to cover, we're actually more like about two thirds of the way through, which is totally awesome. We're smashing through the catechism. Also... I got a new microphone. I don't know if you can hear it, but I can hear it. And I think it sounds silky. Also, we've got an Instagram now. Oh my gosh, it's all happening. You're welcome. So if you type Crash Course Catholicism into Instagram, just all one word, then you can follow the podcast. And that's where I'll post like announcements and updates and like new episodes and stuff. So, okay, to the episode. So as you know, for the last eight or nine episodes, we've been looking at the liturgical and sacramental life of the church. So we've covered all seven of the sacraments, and we're now going to wrap up this section by looking at other practices and things that are related to the liturgy. So if you remember, the liturgy is the official public worship of the church. So we're going to start by specifically looking at sacramentals, and then we're going to look at funerals. So starting with sacramentals, TBH, I have learned so much about sacramentals just preparing this episode, because this is something that I actually really didn't know a lot about. Like, I mean, I could have given you plenty of examples of sacramentals, like holy water and rosary beads and crucifixes and making the sign of the cross and a scapular medal, etc. Like, that's the kind of stuff that we use as Catholics. and And I knew that, but I probably couldn't have given you a very clear definition of what a sacramental actually is and what its function is. And I realized preparing this episode that it's actually really important that as Catholics, we understand sacramentals, what they are, because for two reasons. Firstly, this is an area that can be quite controversial, especially to non-Catholic Christians. So it's really good for us to know what they are so that we can explain it to them. And secondly, sacramentals are something that we can end up really misusing or sort of underusing, underappreciating if we don't actually understand what they are and what they do. So sometimes, you know, Protestants will see Catholics using things like holy water and rosary beads and stuff. And they might be like, man, I mean, firstly, you guys are obsessed with stuff or like external appearances. Like you're all for, you know, making the sign of the cross and waving your beads around. But what's actually going on on the inside? And secondly, all of this looks kind of like superstition. Like you've got this magic water that protects you from the devil when in reality, it's God who protects you from the devil. And you should just go straight to him instead of obsessing over all this material stuff. It's like Jesus says in John chapter six, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. So that's often an argument against using all of these kind of physical objects in our spiritual life. And you know what? All of that is totally true. Like our interior disposition and the state of our soul is way more important than physical objects and gestures. And Jesus, I mean, this is Jesus' number one gripe with the Pharisees. He's always going on about that, that they're all about how they appear and what they're wearing and what they look like and what they're doing. But on the inside, they actually have no relationship with God. And if that were how Catholics were treating sacramentals, like these are objects with their own interests 
intrinsic power. And if I use them, I'll automatically become holy or earn a place in heaven. Then that would be a serious problem, right? Luckily, that is not how we use sacramentals, or at least that's not how we should use them. So how do we use them? What are sacramentals and what is their function? Well, let's start with the word sacramental. Obviously, this word sounds like the word sacrament, and that's because the two are closely related. So sacraments and sacramentals are both tangible signs of spiritual realities and of the action of God's grace in our lives. So Peter Kreeft talks about this. He talks about how in Catholicism, we are constantly bringing the physical and the spiritual together. He talks about how this is a, almost a kind of uniquely Catholic thing, or at least we don't see it anywhere near as much in Protestant churches. This combination of the, the physical and the spiritual, that anything material and human that isn't intrinsically evil can be united with the spiritual and made holy. So, for instance, we can offer up our everyday work. Right? We can unite it to the mass. We can give glory to God in the way that we use our physical human bodies. We can even use secular music and songs to help us pray. So Christopher West talks about this all the time. He is constantly using Bruce Springsteen to explain the theology of the body, which I love because it's like the most dad move ever. And I'm just so there for it. Anyway, so this kind of mingling of the spiritual and the physical occurs throughout our Christian life, but especially in the sacraments. And I say especially because when it comes to the sacraments, those physical things, the objects and the actions are not just signs of God's grace and they're not just united with the spiritual. They are actually the thing that makes the sacrament effective if carried out and received with faith. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is if the minister of the sacrament says the right words, performs the right gestures and uses the right materials, so matter and form, as we've talked about in all those previous episodes, and he does those things with the intention of doing what the church intends, then we can be sure that the sacrament is valid regardless of the state of the soul of the minister. Right? The important thing is the matter and form and the intention of the minister and recipient. So if you ever want to impress someone with your dizzying intellect at a dinner party, you can tell them that the sacraments work ex opere operato. And that's just a fancy Latin term that means from the work performed. Now, the only reason the sacraments work in this way, ex opere operato, is because Christ himself instituted them. And we see it in the gospel, right? He says, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do this in memory of me. And then he gives the apostles the authority to continue to carry out those acts. And then they handed that authority on. So this isn't something that human beings have instituted. We've been like, oh, we're going to you know, create these sacraments and then assume that God is going to bless us through them. No, Christ himself gave these things to us and then sort of said, when you do these things, this will be the effect. This is how my grace will be active. So that's why we can have that confidence that when we perform the sacraments correctly, the grace of God is active and present. Now, in every other aspect of our Christian life, we know that this doesn't apply, right? If I pray or I make the sign of the cross or I say the rosary, that doesn't 
doesn't guarantee that Christ is going to bless me. Because if it did, then that would imply that we have power over God, right? We can force him to bless us. And of course, we can't. The only thing we can do is ask for his blessing and then be receptive to it. And of course, God probably will bless us if we do those things. We just can't sort of presume that or demand it. And this is one of the key differences between sacraments and sacramentals. Sacramentals were not instituted by Christ. There are no guarantees attached to them. They're just practices and signs that have arisen over time in the church, often through popular piety, that help us to pray, draw us closer to the sacraments, and dispose us to receive them. So, point 1668 of the Catechism says that sacramentals are outward signs that always include a prayer. Okay, so they're not just empty signs or gestures or objects, they are signs of something actually going on spiritually, which is a prayer, and then the effects of that prayer, which is God's grace given to us. So when the church prays, when the mystical body of Christ prays, and then God pours out his graces on us in response to that prayer, sacramentals are the physical gestures and objects and signs that signify that action of grace, but that don't cause it. So if we were to attribute a kind of intrinsic power to those physical actions and objects, that's when we would become superstitious, right? So for instance, if I were to say that the actual act of making the sign of the cross had some sort of automatic effect, regardless of you know what I was thinking or feeling or praying about, then I would be treating the sign of the cross as a, a kind of almost like a, a magical thing or some sort of superstition, right? And the same goes for objects. So if you've seen the movie Stardust, there's this character called Tristan, and he's given this special magic brooch that he has to wear at all times because the power is in the brooch and the brooch protects him from, you know, evil spells and stuff. And as soon as he removes the brooch, then he immediately becomes vulnerable. And that can kind of be an attitude that we might have towards sacramentals sometimes. I mean, it's pretty easy to do. Like, I know I've had moments where um, I've had to remove my scapula because I'm about to, like, go for a swim or get an x-ray or something. And, I, you know, you have that moment where you're like, oh, no, what if I die when I'm like, what if I, like, drown in the pool or I die when I'm getting an x-ray? And then, you know, it happens to be in that moment when I'm not wearing the scapula. Will all of the promises of the scapula still apply to me if I'm not wearing it? And then you kind of have to stop yourself and be like, whoa there champion. That is not, that's not how the sacramentals work. It's not the actual um, thing that you're wearing that is efficacious. It's actually just a sign of something deeper, which is an ongoing kind of nurtured relationship that I have with God. And that is what is going to, you know, get me to heaven. Not the fact that I'm wearing this, this little medal. So we might hear that and think, well, in that case, what's the point of the physical objects? Like, do they just have no meaning? Well, no, that, that would be going too, too far to the other end of the spectrum. That would be treating sacramentals as though they're just these meaningless, almost like good luck charms, right? Or accessories that we just wear and they're signs of the fact that I'm a Christian, but they don't really do anything. So if we return to the thing of wearing the scapula, like obviously if you need to take it off for some reason, that's fine. But at the same time, you shouldn't just be like ripping it off willy nilly. It still matters that you wear the scapula if you want to then receive the promises attached to wearing the scapula. But as well as that, even though sacramentals don't have that automatic or intrinsic power of their own, they still do a lot. So point 1667 of the Catechism says that by the use of the sacramentals, we are disposed to receive the chief effect of the sacraments and various occasions in life are rendered holy. Okay. 
Let's unpack that quote. So basically what this quote is saying is that the chief function of sacramentals is to sort of point us towards and dispose us to receive the sacraments. So we can think of it like this. Think of it like a tree and you've got like the twigs in the outer branches of the tree and they are not the most kind of essential part of the tree. But if we follow them, they will lead us into the inner part, those those bigger inner branches and the trunk of the tree, the real sort of meat of it. As well as that, those outer branches kind of extend the, the life and the reach of the tree as well. So there's this booklet released by Catholic Answers. It's called 20 Questions, Sacramentals and Relics. And it's really helpful. I really recommend reading it if you want to know um, more on this topic. It's also super short, which is really helpful if you have like an ADD brain like mine. So in this booklet, the author Sean McAfee breaks down the, the key ways that sacramentals dispose us to receive the sacraments. So he outlines three key things that sacramentals do. First of all, they teach us about and remind us of the truths of our faith. So the best example of this is a crucifix, right? So McAfee says, a crucifix on a wall represents more than cultural iconography. It reminds us of the reality of the unique sacrificial death of Christ for the sins of all mankind. So literally, this happened to me today. I went to the nursery to buy a plant. And I was talking to the woman at the nursery and she was wearing a cross around her neck. And it was really nice. It was this reminder, this moment of like, oh, yeah, that's right. God loves me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, thank you, lady, wearing your crucifix around. Like, that was a really nice little moment of like, I needed that reminder just throughout my day that like God died for my sins. Right. And you see it in little kids as well when they see something like a crucifix and they ask questions and it becomes like a point of teaching or they just start to internalize that concept of, of the cross and of what Jesus did for us. Right. So Sacramentals can be really powerful teaching objects. And then, kind of off the back of that, sacramentals also deepen our faith. So we've talked about this so many times throughout the course of the episodes on the sacraments, that as human beings, we're we're physical beings, right? And we need tangible reminders of things. And, and our faith obviously doesn't depend on those physical things, but it's really helped when we can have something tangible, something we can touch and see and hear. So if we return to the example of a crucifix, I can know intellectually that Jesus died for me and that he loves me, but to actually see and touch a crucifix, especially one that has an image of our Lord hanging on it, that is such a a tangible reminder of the truth of that and the reality of that. And that can help to deepen my faith. And then thirdly, they also signify effects obtained through the intercession of the church. So this is the one that we've kind of already covered, right? That sacramentals signify the effects of the prayers of the church. Now, sacramentals can be divided into two categories, acts and objects. So acts are things like genuflecting, making the sign of the cross, blessings, and even exorcisms. And then objects include things like medals, holy water, rosary beads, prayer cards, crosses, priestly vestments, scapulars, holy oils, etc. So the catechism talks in particular about blessings and exorcisms as examples of sacramentals. And actually, mainly the focus is mainly on blessings. So in point 1671, it says that among sacramentals, blessings of persons, meals, objects, and places come first. So a blessing is when you pray over something and then either ask God to send his grace down on that thing 
and or you dedicate that thing to the service of God. So when you bless something, it's like if you take a sponge and you soak it in water, right? You're you're sort of like soaking that thing in the graces of God. And once something has been blessed, it has a kind of holiness or sacredness to it, right? It's not just a sponge anymore. It's a sponge that's been soaked in the graces of God. And it can also then be dedicated specifically to the service of God in some way. So the Catechism talks about, in point 1672, things like the consecration of virgins, the blessing of certain ministries of the church, readers, acolytes, catechists, etc., the dedication or blessing of a church or an altar, holy oils, vessels, and vestments, bells, etc. Okay, and then exorcisms. That's the second thing that the catechism talks about. So what's an exorcism? I mean, I'm sure we've all heard that term before in like popular culture, but what is an exorcism? Point 1673 of the catechism says that an exorcism is when the church asks publicly and authoritatively in the name of Jesus Christ, that a person or object be protected against the power of the evil one and withdrawn from his dominion. So this is actually a really interesting quote because it reminds us that exorcisms perform a kind of twofold function. The first is to withdraw someone from the power of the devil, but the second is to protect them from the power of the devil. So it's a kind of preventative act. It's not always about, you know, someone is possessed or in the power of the devil and they have to be sort of rescued from that. It can also just be a way of preventing that from happening. And this actually happened recently. A friend of mine was baptized at Easter and a couple of weeks before her baptism, I overheard a conversation between two of our mutual friends. And one of them was saying to the other, oh, you should come on Sunday because it's a couple of weeks before Brenda's baptism and we're going to have, there's an exorcism. And the other person was like, what? And then she had to explain like, no, 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 she's not like possessed. This is just part of the actual rite of initiation that the priest prays for that person that they be protected from the power of the devil. And that's an important thing to do, right, in the lead up to a baptism, because of course, the devil does not want that person to become a Christian. So he might sort of put roadblocks in the way in those final weeks. And so the church prays for that person as they prepare. Okay, now let's talk a little bit more deeply about a couple of really common examples of objects that are sacramentals. So One of the most common examples of a sacramental is holy water. Holy water is water that has been blessed by a priest. So Sean McAfee sort of summarizes some of the key effects of holy water. The first thing is that it can help us to overcome temptations. So holy water can be a really, really great thing for us to turn to if we're struggling with some sort of temptation, right? It can really help us. A second effect is that it acts as a medicine for body and soul. Now, of course, no one is suggesting that, you know, we should be like, oh, don't go to the doctor, just sprinkle holy water on yourself. No, of course not. But when holy water is blessed, part of that blessing is that the church prays for the physical and spiritual healing of the people who use it. And then thirdly, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about how the use of holy water can wipe away venial sin if we are properly disposed. Again, not because holy water is magic, but because it is a sign of the effects of the prayer of the church. And then the final and possibly the most cool effect of holy water is that it drives away the devil. So St. Teresa of Avila says that I often experience that there is nothing the devils flee from more without returning than holy water. 
So we really shouldn't underestimate the power of using this sacramental. It's a really incredible, beautiful thing. So another common example of a sacramental is a scapula. So the scapula was originally part of the habit of various orders, like the Dominicans or the Carmelites, but it has over time been incorporated into lay spirituality as well. So you might have encountered what is the most common form of scapula these days, which is what's called the brown scapula. And it's two sort of square rectangular pieces of wool that are joined at the front and the back by a single sort of thread. And it's basically a symbol of Marian devotion, right? It's a symbol of love for Our Lady. And Our Lady has appeared to saints before and attached certain promises to the wearing of the scapula. Most importantly, she said that if you're wearing the scapula, then when you die, you won't go to hell. Now, again, it's not a magical talisman. It's a sign of an interior reality, which is a relationship that I have with Our Lady and Our Lord. Now, the scapula is a really good example of a sacramental that has kind of changed over time, the size of it, the shape of it. And this is something we touched on earlier, right? That sacramentals often arise out of and are kind of shaped by popular piety. So point 1674 of the Catechism says, The religious sense of the Christian people has always found expression in various forms of piety surrounding the church's sacramental life, veneration of relics, visits to sanctuaries, pilgrimages, processions, the stations of the cross, religious dances, the rosary, medals, etc., So you might have encountered this if you've done any traveling, right? You go to another country and you're like, whoa, the way that you guys express your faith and live your faith is kind of different to to how I do. And this is one of the beautiful, wonderful things about our Catholic faith is that there is room for that, right? Provided, provided that those forms of popular piety aren't actually sort of going against Catholic teaching, then heck yeah, venerate the relics of a particular saint that's important to your culture. If you've ever read a book called My Family and Other Animals, it's one of my favorite books ever. And there's this beautiful scene where this English family gets swept up in this procession in Greece. Like the whole town has come out to venerate the relics of this Saint Spiridion and this poor English family kind of accidentally end up part of the procession and they're all completely discombobulated and not sure what the heck's going on. You might have had a similar experience of that before where you've gone to another country and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so, I'm so out of my depth, right? And that is ultimately such a beautiful reminder of the fact that the church is truly Catholic, like small c Catholic, universal. Having said that, we obviously have to avoid becoming relativistic. So this is why the catechism in point 1676 talks about the importance of pastoral discernment to support and if necessary to purify and correct the religious sense which underlies these devotions. So basically what it's saying is that, you know, this kind of popular piety is really, really beautiful and a really good thing, but it should never override or supersede the church's teachings or the sacraments. Okay, so I know we've spent like 90% of this episode talking about sacramentals and we still need to talk about funerals, but that's because the section on funerals is really short. So it'll take us like two minutes to talk about it. Okay, so before we finish up, let's quickly talk about funerals. So funerals are part of the church's liturgy. So the official public worship of the church, but obviously there is not any particular sacrament specifically associated with funerals. And the reason for that, of course, is because the person has died. Point 1684 of the catechism says that the Christian funeral can 
confers on the deceased neither a sacrament nor a sacramental, since he has passed beyond the sacramental economy. This is a really important thing to remember, right? Is that the point of the sacraments is to ultimately get us to heaven. Once we get to heaven, we don't need the sacraments anymore. We don't need those physical, tangible signs and channels of grace because we will literally be in the presence of God, right? We'll be in heaven. Okay, so if the person has already passed beyond the sacramental economy, then what is the point of funerals? Well, we often talk about this, right, just in in sort of secular everyday life. We talk about how funerals are kind of more for the living than for the dead. And culturally and socially, they are a way of us, you know, grieving, experiencing a kind of catharsis, connecting with each other, celebrating the life of that person, etc. And all of those things are true and good. However, that's not the whole picture when it comes to Christian funerals. And the Catechism puts it like this in point 1683. I think this is a really beautiful quote. It says, the church who, as mother, has born the Christian sacramentally in her womb during his earthly pilgrimage, accompanies him at his journey's end in order to surrender him into the Father's hands. She offers to the Father in Christ the child of his grace, and she commits to the earth in hope the seed of the body that will rise in glory. Isn't that a beautiful image? I think that is lovely, (laughs) that the church is a mother who surrenders her child into the hands of God and then buries their body in the earth in the sure hope that it will be resurrected at the end of time. How beautiful is that? And there is something forward-looking about Christian funerals. It's not just about sort of commemorating the end of someone's life. It's also looking ahead to their eternal life in heaven. So the Catechism in points 1686 to 1690 outlines the four key elements of a Christian funeral. The first is a greeting which might include a prayer for the person who has died and some words of consolation for the mourners. And then we have the liturgy of the word. So readings. And again, this is so beautiful. Point 1688 says the liturgy of the word during funerals demands very careful preparation because the assembly present for the funeral may include some faithful who rarely attend the liturgy and friends of the deceased who are not Christians. I love that. I love the sensitivity of the church that it's like, yeah, let's acknowledge the fact that not everyone who's here is necessarily a Christian. At the same time, that doesn't mean that Christian funerals should be like wishy-washy, like, oh, just don't talk about God and don't talk about faith because, you know, people in the congregation might not be Christian and we don't want to freak them out. Like, no, this is a Christian funeral, especially if the person who died was a Christian, then you should be talking about God and heaven. So the Catechism in point 1688 says that the homily in particular must avoid the literary genre of funeral eulogy. So you can have a eulogy, but the homily is not a eulogy and it's okay to talk about God. As well as it being okay to talk about God, this is also a fantastic opportunity to introduce people to the beauty and the hope of the message of Christianity, right? So the Catechism goes on to say that the homily should illumine the mystery of Christian death in the light of the risen Christ. So the focus should be on, yes, death, but death in light of the resurrection and the hope that that brings us. And then the third element of a funeral is the Eucharistic sacrifice. So what better way to commend someone to the love and mercy of God to sort of surrender someone into the arms of the Father than through that ultimate offering of the sacrifice of the Mass, of of the Eucharist? 
But more than that, the Catechism in point 1689 goes on to talk about how through communion, we as members of the mystical body of Christ are brought into closer communion with each other. So it says, by the Eucharist, the community of the faithful, especially the family of the deceased, learn to live in communion with the one who has fallen asleep in the Lord by communicating in the body of Christ of which he is a living member. So basically what it's saying is that the person who has died, if they've died in a state of grace, they remain a member of the mystical body of Christ. And when we receive communion, I mean, at the funeral, but also for the rest of our lives in the mass, right? We are brought into closer communion with the whole body of Christ, including that person who has died. I mean, what a beautiful, wonderful consolation, right? That we don't just think, oh, well, that person has died, but, you know, I I still believe that they're in heaven and I have this kind of emotional connection with them. But I truly am connected to them through the Eucharist. Okay, and then the final element of a Christian funeral is the final farewell. So this is an opportunity for all of the congregation to in some way say goodbye to that person before they are buried. So that might involve going up to the coffin and bowing in front of it or saying a prayer or touching it or kissing it or in some way saying goodbye to that person. But importantly, it is a goodbye that is kind of undergirded by the hope that we will see each other again in heaven. So the catechism quotes Saint Simeon of Thessalonica, who lived in the 14th century. And he says, for even dead, we are not at all separated from one another because we all run the same course and we will find one another again in the same place. We shall never be separated for we live for Christ. And now we are united with Christ as we go toward him and we shall all be together in Christ. Uh, Well, I think that is a beautiful place to leave it. Okay. So that's all we've got time for today. This is, that's it. We've done the second part of the catechism. Yay. So in the next episode, we're going to start on part three of the catechism, which is all about the 10 commandments and the moral life. So this is the section where we're going to encounter all of the doozies and all of the tricky moral questions, and also all of the beautiful teachings of the church around human morality. I am both very excited and very daunted by the next section of the catechism. I can't wait. So I will see you in two weeks. Have a wonderful fortnight. Bye. Mm -hmm.